0: Father, I was reminded uh, this morning about the father with the unclean, possessed son that he brought to Jesus, and he struggled with whether he could heal him, and the father cried out, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief, and Lord, that is our, that is our prayer we know that we can be uh, weak in faith at times, and we can be strong in faith. We pray that you would strengthen us this morning. That you would give us eyes to see, and that you would give power to the reading and the preaching of your word. In Christ's name, amen. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. As he went out since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is the word of the Lord.
1: As we get going here today, just a little reminder of of where we are and where we're headed preaching-wise today and in the coming weeks. We normally, for those of you that are visiting here at Cornerstone, we normally preach straight through books of the Bible, and we have been in the Gospel of Mark for some time. And we've taken a break from that last week and today, and next week we'll have kind of standalone sermons. And then, can you believe after... Next Sunday, we begin Advent. Can you believe that? Yeah, Christmas decorations, those things are coming out. Uh, Advent meaning coming. We celebrate the first and the second coming of Christ in the season of Advent. So we're just a few weeks away. So a standalone uh, message today and next week. We'll pick up again in the Gospel of Mark uh, in January of 2017. Well, what a week it has been. I mean, what a week. Uh, Last Sunday, I don't think hardly anyone in our country thought that Donald Trump would be our president-elect. I don't think he thought that he would be (laughs) president-elect. The polls didn't think that he would be president. The pundits, the talking heads on the news programs, did not think that he would be president-elect. It has been an astonishing week, a surprising week, a stunning week, with massive emotions in our country, with uh, protests, with people genuinely distraught, I was reading this morning in the Washington Post uh, another article about the distraughtness. This was of college students. One college student said his disappointment with Trump being president elect that he is experiencing a level of despair I have never felt in my life. We saw the images, if you've had the TV on at all, we saw the images of what went on in New York at the what was going to be the Clinton celebration you probably heard that she scheduled her celebration party election party in a place with a glass ceiling did you hear that so we have this dynamic of the first woman president not happening in many people in our country Incredibly distraught here. Do you love technology? I'm trying to get this to forward. I have just several pictures here that bring out uh, the emotion, the disappointment, uh, the, the anguish that many people, particularly in our state, but many, many of our neighbors. And people that we know, and perhaps some of us here today even, uh, felt. It was an astonishing week. So today's sermon, uh, I, I scrapped what I was going to do in a different standalone sermon this week. And as I came in Wednesday morning and was talking with some of the women before Women's Bible study, the Lord in our conversation kind of communicated to me, you need to preach a different message through these ladies primarily. And so we're going to hear from the word of God uh, in Hebrews. We're jumping to Hebrews. We're going to look at just a short section of this passage. And my aim is for us to see how to respond to this election and really to all elections Christianly. How to respond. And so your Bibles are probably already open there to Hebrews chapter 11. But let's look. We're going to look at just a small section of Hebrews chapter 11, and talk about responding to this election Christianly. Now what's been going on in Hebrews chapter 11, just a quick summary, you're familiar with many of you with this chapter, there's this list of, of these heroes of the faith, all of these different people, and then the author of Hebrews, we're not sure who it is, maybe Apollos, but it's, we don't know for certain, he takes a step back and he makes some comments about all of these people, look at verse 13 with me. It says all of these people were still living by faith when they died. Or when they died in faith, however your translation puts it. It it gives us this idea, this first sentence of verse 13, that all of these people were still on the journey when they died. They were living by faith. They had yet to arrive. They weren't there yet. But they were living by faith. And I want to say that we should ask the question and answer the question, living by faith in what? Living by faith in whom? And of course, they were living by faith in the one true God, the God of history, the God of Scripture, the God of the Scriptures. They had Their faith had not yet become sight, but they were living by faith, they were living as works in progress in a journey on the way to a destination. This this is coming out in this little paragraph in, in this first sentence in verse 13. Do you see that with me? Say amen if you see that. You see that? So we are like them if we are believers. We are works in progress. And our goal is that at that moment when we die, assuming we die before the Lord comes back, that we will be living by faith. And so, this may sound so uh, duh, but so obvious, but the object of one's faith is not the presidency, but Jesus. The object of our faith is not the Republican or the Democratic Party or its platform, but Jesus and his work upon the cross. This is the object of our faith. Now, this may sound so obvious. So let me try to flesh this out, what I mean here. Because if we go back to this, uh, this man's expression on his face here, uh, I actually see myself here. I see myself in this man's shock and disappointment and fear, but for me, I have to go back to 1992 when I felt like that. Anybody with me? Remember when Bill Clinton was elected president? I I hope you didn't feel like I did, but I felt like that. But it took me a long time to realize why I felt like that. The reason I felt like that in 1992 was because I was excessively attached to the idea of the presidency and to the idea of this person certainly cannot be our president. I was excessively attached to that. And so emotions of depression and discouragement and fear were upon me. Now, if you, had, if you had grabbed me at that time and said, where is your faith? I would have said, the object of my faith is the Lord Jesus Christ. Crucified. Buried. Resurrected. Ascended to the right hand of the Father. That's how I would have answered the question. But if you looked at my life, and you looked at my face, which looked like this, and you were a mature believer, which no one did this to me, because I think most of the people around me were in the same condition at that time. But if you were a mature believer and you looked at my life, you would have said, Mike, your functional God right now is the presidency. And you are freaking out And you are responding like that because the object of your faith is not the person and work of Jesus, but something else. The Bible calls this idolatry. It wasn't until actually years later from 1992 where I kind of grew in my understanding of the gospel And how regularly we need to apply the gospel to our lives. And I needed to actually repent. Not of who I desired or didn't desire to be president, but my excessive attachment to to what I wanted in the presidency. I needed to repent of that. But I couldn't see that at that time. So this incredibly obvious sentence, the object of one's faith is not the presidency but Jesus hopefully has some flavor and some depth and some, something beyond the duh sort of experience. In my reading uh, in recent weeks, I've come across this man, David Foster Wallace. Anybody know this guy? He's a, uh, I'd never heard of him before. I wouldn't expect you to know him. He's, uh, I'm not sure if we would, we probably would call him a liberal. I'm not sure what we would would call someone like this. He was an English professor. Uh, He gave a commencement speech at Kenyon College, not from a biblical perspective, but it is fascinating. Most commencement addresses, I mean, we know what they're for, right? I mean, they're just this, this compulsory thing you have to have at a graduation ceremony before you get to the thing where you hear your person's name that you want to hear, right? you got to sit through. Anybody been, am I, I mean, that, that's what most commencement speeches are. How long do we have to sit through whatever you can achieve your dream? You can be whatever you want to be. You know, what, you know we sit through that because we want to hear our kids or our nephew or our grandkids' name read aloud, but occasionally there's a commencement speech that transforms that and becomes something great. And, and this particular guy's commencement speech did that. And it became a book. And it's on YouTube and it's all over the place. And it got into some of my reading. And so I looked it up and I, I'm, I'm about to share with you sections of it. Some of you might bristle a little bit at the beginning because he's not coming from a, a biblical perspective. He's coming from a theistic perspective but in this commencement, in this secular commencement speech, this guy nails idolatry. Listen to what he said in part in his speech. This is a secular guy, secular place. There is actually no such thing as atheism. There is not, no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice... We get is what to worship and the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship be it JC Jesus Christ or Allah be it Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess or the four noble truths or let me pause here just in case you're a visitor okay Uh, obviously this is not biblical here right where he's coming from so uh, we know that Jesus Christ is our God amen. But here we go. This is why I'm sharing this. This is a secular guy speaking at a commencement speech in a secular place telling people they can't be atheists. Everybody worships. And you might as well choose some kind of a spiritual thing to worship. He goes on. He says there, there is, uh, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that there is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they are unconscious. They are default settings. That's one of the best explanations of idolatry I've come across. He understands what idolatry is. My default setting in 1992 was this excessive attachment to my idea of who could or who couldn't be president. And so I was depressed and I was discouraged and I was fearful. Idolatry is our default setting. And we need other believers around us to help us to see what is actually functioning as our God in our lives. Back to our text now. Hebrews 11 and verse 13. These folks, including us, these heroes of the faith, these people saved by grace, they are living By faith, when they died, they were works in project, works in progress, rather. The object of their faith is Jesus. We need a reminder of this following this election. Whether you are discouraged or depressed or just not even sure what's going to come of our country, that our faith is in the Lord Jesus. still in verse 13 it says they did not receive the things promised they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance uh, in my mind i have the picture of moses here you know he 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 gets to see the promised land but he doesn't get in he doesn't get there and this is the condition of the heroes of the faith this is our condition we are not there yet We are not in heaven yet. We we, we are not going to get there before the coming of Christ or before we die. But again, in verse 13, we see that, that they did not receive the things promised. They only welcomed them and saw them from a distance. This doesn't mean that we are not to change our society and our culture. It doesn't mean the fact that we haven't gotten there, that we aren't to love our neighbors and to change the world around us. So I want to say, second of four points this morning, is that cultural renewal will not be complete in this world. And that's okay. Uh, this is uh, no surprise to you, but Donald Trump is not going to make America great again. Hillary Clinton was not going to make America great again. If we understand greatness from a biblical perspective, it involves loving God and in servant kinds of ways, loving others and serving others. It is the power of the gospel that is going to make America great again. If it ever is great again. If it ever was great at any time. To whatever degree that America has greatness, it is attributed to the spreading of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we shouldn't be surprised that cultural renewal That is our society and culture becoming Christ-like, becoming a a place of beauty, a place where there's justice for the poor and the oppressed and the weak. The fact that 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 is not going to happen completely is okay. This side of heaven, it's not going to happen. And to whatever degree it's going to happen, it is going to be a work of the Holy Spirit, not a work of the presidency of the United States of America. So, a couple scriptures here. Matthew 5, Jesus says, you're familiar with this. You are the light of the world. You, plural. You all. Texas translation would say y'all there. Y'all, the disciples. You, me, the disciples in Manhattan, the disciples in France, the disciples in Mexico. Mexico, right now, they are the light of the world. We are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Folks, I, I, I'm a patriotic in many ways. My grandfather fought in World War II, so I don't want this to be taken the wrong way. But I have to say biblically speaking, that America is not the light of the world. France is not the light of the world. Mexico is not the light of the world. Uganda is not the light of the world. Jesus Christ, living in and through his people, through the power of the gospel, is the light of the world. So we shouldn't expect the world, to be godly. 1 Corinthians 5 brings this out. Paul writes there, we looked at this not many months ago, I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral. In that case, you would have to leave this world. What business it, is it of mine to judge those outside the church are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. It is not our business to judge worldly politicians who do not love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's our job to pray for them, to love them, if we ever had interactions with them, to share the gospel with them, not to look at them as functional saviors of our nation or of any nation. Back to our text here. Hebrews 11 and verse 13. Again, we're seeing the author of Hebrews pulling back and describing these heroes of the faith. We see in the middle of verse 13, they admitted that they, the very end of verse 13, and they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. Boy, did I need that verse in 1992. they admitted they were aliens and strangers on earth. So we preach to ourselves. I need to preach to myself this way. I live in America as an alien and stranger. It is not my home. Ultimately. I mean no disrespect to those who serve our country civilly or in the military here. It is possible, it is honorable for Christians to serve in the military in other ways. But in an ultimate perspective, folks, if we want to listen to the Bible, the Bible is shouting to every nation on the planet today that believers live in that nation as aliens and strangers. It's not our home. But it's easy to get comfortable in the richest and most powerful country on the planet and feel like this is my home and I need the president that I need. And if I don't get it, I'm going to look like that guy that was on the screen earlier. A couple authors, Howard Wass and Williams... Willimon, actually, his last name, write this about this idea of us being aliens on earth, believers. They write this. They say, The challenge facing today's Christians is not the necessity to translate Christian convictions into a modern idiom, but rather to form a community, a colony of resident aliens, which is so shaped by our convictions that no one even has to ask what we mean by confessing belief in God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I don't know if you get what he's saying here. He's saying, the way I understand what he's saying here, when he says uh, the challenge facing today's Christians is not the necessity to translate Christian convictions into a modern idiom. What he's saying here is the, 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 the reason the church is weak is not because we don't have Starbucks coffee in the foyer. he's he's saying the challenge that we're really facing is not that we haven't gotten so savvy and to communicate with this culture and relevancy, but that we perhaps haven't become a colony, a community, a family of resident aliens that loves each other so much that we have meals together and that we help each other and that we love each other so much that no one has to ask what does it mean to be a believer because they see us as this community as a city on a hill as a light they go on and they say the church is the visible political enactment of our language of God by a people who can name their sin and accept God's forgiveness and are thereby enabled to speak the truth in love. We are called to be the light of the world. We are called to be, if you will, a political enactment, the body of Christ. And who are we? We're people of grace. We're forgiven. We're just as messed up as the unbelievers. We're just as messed up as the, as the guy who spoke at Kenyon College we're just as messed up as the, as the people at the glass ceiling party that didn't happen last week. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short. And so today, part of what the Lord has put on my heart out of his word is to remind us to preach to ourselves that we are aliens and strangers in this world. And if we feel very comfortable here, and that doesn't feel right, if you don't want to preach that to yourself there's some soul searching that needs to go on. I hope there's conversation this week in small groups at dinner tables about this. When I was a teenager, traveled to um, the Yucatan Peninsula. It was kind of a mission trip, but it wasn't a normal uh, mission trip. You see that little red dot there? see that? You might not be able to see that. Let me go back. I like playing with this. You know that, right? You know I like like playing with this, but I don't know how to do it. It's not working again. That's okay. I forget why. I won't play with it. Um, I traveled to Mexico when I was 16 or 17 on a mission trip. I couldn't find any pictures, uh, so I grabbed this one off the Internet. This is from this little village called Kimbila in the Yucatan Peninsula. And it was supposed to be kind of a normal mission trip, but I ended up kind of leaving the, the uh, gringos behind, if you will, and I'm living with these families for about a month, and I only spoke about this much Spanish, and I have a lot of sweet memories from about a month that I was down there. Uh, some memories and some experiences that I never had before and never had since. One of them was getting dinner at a place like this. Uh, you know, I'm used to going to Rayleigh's if I want to get a, a chicken or something, but when we were down there, it's time to eat. Lady goes out, gets a chicken, gets dinner. Any you do that today? Does anybody do that? No, n- nobody does that here. Does anybody do that? I'd never experienced that. Um, I was with Christian brothers and sisters having all these new experiences. I re- have these memories when I was 16 or 17 hopping on the back of, of this motorcycle. No helmet, shorts, and we're just flying across the jungle of the Yucatan Peninsula with this guy. I barely speak the language. We're going all these different places, and I'm, I'm just bonding and, and just loving these people. And after being there a few weeks, and not speaking English, struggling, staying up in the late wee hours of the night, trying to, trying to communicate in very simple ways with these believers, I started to grow to love these, these people, and I actually thought about staying down there. thought about staying down there. But then I realized um, some of my closest brothers in the Lord were... Uh, were were waiting on me to come home and so there were moments where where i felt like uh, man i want to stay here but then all of a sudden i'd realize no this isn't my home i can't stay here i have relationships and and a church family and i and i and i have to go home and the lord is saying to us through this passage today That we sometimes can feel like America is our home. And we have to be reminded that it is not our home. That we are on a journey and the Bible describes us as people who've come up to the edge of the promised land, but we haven't gotten in. We are aliens and strangers here. And what's supposed to stand out is our colonies, our communities of faith. So that when people look at us and they see our love for one another, they would know that we are believers in Jesus. So today is in part a reminder from a biblical perspective of who we are and where we live. Our home ultimately is not in America or in Mexico or in Uganda or in France or whatever country believers live in come back to our passage here finish this up looking at verses 14 through 16 we've looked at uh, verse 13 Hebrews 11 they admitted they were aliens and strangers on earth this is what we need to do verse 14 people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own This is what characterizes believers. We are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So I'm preaching to myself today, and I'm asking you to preach to yourselves this week, especially if you have a face and emotions like we've seen on the screen today. I'm preaching to myself that I'm confidently waiting for a better country. I'm waiting for what the psalmist calls the city of God. I'm waiting for what the scriptures call the new Jerusalem. I'm waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. Now, it's not all future. We are to impact our culture here by these communities of faith, these churches, not buildings, but groups of people, you and me, So we are to change this world. I don't say we should just ignore it. But we are confidently awaiting a better country because this is not our home. Psalm 46 uses this phrase, the city of God. Let me read it to you. God is our refuge and strength an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. No matter who our president is, no matter what's going on, therefore we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the most high dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. We shouldn't be surprised, folks. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. We are awaiting a better country. We are aliens and strangers who have joined into communities that we call churches as we await the city of God. Augustine writes this. He says, through these, this passage I read in Psalms and many other similar passages, too numerous to quote, we learn of the existence of the city of God whose founder has inspired us with a love and longing to become its citizens. I'm a citizen of the U.S. I'm an American, yes. But that is down here. You and I are citizens of another city, of another place, of a place that we haven't got to yet. But we are praying that we will be there soon and that we will be bringing many others along with us. That is why the Lord Jesus has not yet come back. In my estimation, why it has been 2,000 years when he says, I'm coming soon. Because there are more resident aliens to collect and to gather into these communities to be ready to be citizens of the new heavens and the new earth. We're longing for this new country, the city of God. Let's bow our heads and pray. Ask the Lord to help us on this journey. Father in heaven, it has been an astounding week in our country and in many ways in the world. Lord, I pray that you would give us, as believers, your perspective. The perspective of the scriptures of our place in the world. That one day you will make this world new. But in the meantime, Lord, it is a battle and it is a fight here. The evil one is strong and mighty. And we should not be surprised at trials and tribulations and precedents that we don't want. Lord, open our eyes, whether it's a presidency or whether it is something else that we might be excessively attached to in the place of Jesus and his kingdom. Open our eyes today. Lord, for those of us who maybe know all of this and are not traumatized, Lord, help us to be compassionate to those around us who are and to love them and to give them a message of hope and of grace. Lord, I'm thinking of young people like this man who said, a level of despair I have never felt in my life. He's feeling after this election. Lord, many of our neighbors are probably in that kind of a place. Help us to display the gospel, to share the gospel to them. As we await our home country, we pray in Jesus' name.